up in less than a quarter of a second, I had over 2.2 million hits. And most of them, from what I could tell, were dated in the last five years from newspapers from coast to coast. This is a popular topic. Now, I scanned many of them, not all 2.2 million, but I got enough to get a, a flavor of what's happening in our culture with this phrase. And not once, ever, with anyone, anywhere, did I read an example of someone who believes that we can legislate love. From hardcore conservatives to flaming liberals, as divided as our country is, we are one voice on this topic. You can't legislate love. As a society, it's an impossibility. Love cannot be decreed or commanded of one another. And you know what? Our culture has it exactly right. We can't legislate love. But in his holy law, God has already done it for us. Our culture is exactly right. You cannot legislate love. But in his holy law, God has done that for us. If you have not already, I will invite you to open a Bible to the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. If you wanted to follow along in one of our red Bibles in the seats, the text is found on page 828. 828 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 24. This point in Matthew's gospel, the final week of Jesus' life has already begun. In chapter 21, we read of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He has already cleansed the temple by casting out the money changers. And by chapter 22, Jesus' life and ministry, as if they hadn't already been, are under serious scrutiny by the religious leaders. This scrutiny is coming from the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew has Jesus being asked three questions, back to back to back, in chapter 22. Each of the questions is designed to show him as a fraud, to undermine Jesus' ministry. He has been asked about paying taxes to Caesar, with the hope probably of getting him on tax evasion. Then the Sadducees take a swing at him. They try to trip him up theologically by questioning him about the doctrine of resurrection. The irony is thick to me that anyone on the planet would think that they could trip up Jesus about what the Bible says about resurrection. Um, They were not successful. Oh, for two. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they try one more time to get him. And we'll pick up the conversation as it begins in Matthew 22, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now here's why this man's question matters so much. Point one today. The law of God carries with it both blessing and cursing. So a proper handling of the scriptures on this point is of shattering importance. The law of God carries with it both blessing and cursing, so a proper handling of the scriptures on this point is of shattering importance. 
In verse 34, Matthew tells us that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That's the very reason he got the question. There were two schools of thought, Pharisees and Sadducees. They were bitter opponents of one another. And so what Matthew is saying, we can read between the lines. We don't have to read between the lines here. But this question from the scribe is not pure as the driven snow. He's not interested in just having a friendly theological discussion with Jesus. Jesus just bested the Sadducees. And if the Pharisees can best Jesus, then they're the best. You get the flow of what's going on here? It's point scoring. The question comes from spite and self-righteousness. And if that weren't clear enough, it's shown in verse 35 plainly. Jesus is asked a question to test him. To test him. This is par for the course in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Just a few verses earlier, Matthew twenty two eighteen, we read, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? A little bit earlier on, Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees together came to test him, ask him to show a sign from heaven. This is not a friendly question from this man. This is a hostile question. Someone who sees Jesus as a threat. He's trying to expose Jesus as a false prophet or maybe worse. And the question, as it is about the law, is huge. You could not imagine a more important question in first century Jewish culture. Everything revolves around the law, especially for the Pharisees. There's a lot on the line here with the question, and there's a lot on the line here with Jesus' answer. Verse 35 calls this particular Pharisee a lawyer. Don't fill that up with 21st century meaning. It's a, it's a little bit of a different kind of a lawyer. Um, the word also meant scribe, although there's a different New Testament word for scribe. Um, this guy likely held a judicial office. That's why he was a lawyer, uh, more like a judge. He could have been a member of the Sanhedrin that's going to, the ruling body that's going to condemn Jesus for blasphemy in just a matter of days. This man was at least a theologian. He's a protector of the Jewish tradition. Um, one author I read said he was, a, he was a curator of sacred scripture. Think of him that way. He's a professional Bible answer man. This man knows his Old Testament. He didn't ask Jesus this question because he didn't think he knew the answer. Verse 36, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, all motives aside for a second, this is a big question, as I mentioned earlier, even if this man weren't out to get Jesus, which he is. First century Jewish culture, everything revolved around the law. There were 613 commandments in the Mosaic law alone. I read all 613 of them this week. You can Google that, too. That's how I did it. The book of Deuteronomy is abundantly clear. Israel will be blessed if they keep the law, and they will be cursed if they do not keep the law. All of the law. And by cursed, we mean damned, ruined, and destroyed forever. So with that as the backdrop, teacher, 
What's the greatest commandment in the law? Now remember, whatever Jesus answers, this man's a professional theologian, this man's going to turn against him. He's only looking for one commandment. There are 612 ways to try to hang Jesus with his answer. All Jesus has to answer is one commandment. Which one's the greatest? Is it circumcision? Is it Sabbath? Is it all the laws about sacrifice or purity? There's a truckload on the line here for Jesus. But this is Jesus. And his answer is incredible. The law of God carries with it both blessing and cursing. So a proper handling of the scriptures on this point is of shattering importance. Aren't you glad Jesus is the one answering this question? Point number two. Of the law's 613 commands, love God and love your neighbor aren't 0.003% of the law. They are 100% of the law. Of the law's 613 commands, love God and love your neighbor are not three one-thousandths of the law. They are 100% of the law. Follow along with me and I'll read verses 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. Jesus is asked to name the greatest command. And he opts to mention two, which is interesting. Love the Lord, verse 37. Love your neighbor, verse 39. In the first place, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. And in the second place, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Notice that the nature of the man's question assumes there's some proportion to the law of God. This is very crucial for us to recognize that doctrine works this way. All of God's law is equally true, but not all of God's law is equally weighty. He's right. Jesus himself says as much in Matthew 23, 23, when he's lighting up the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, righteousness, and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, Jesus says. So clearly there's proportion to the law. Justice and mercy are first-order laws, Tithing, significant as it is, is second-order law. So Jesus is clear there's such a thing as a greatest commandment. It's not a theological fiction that the man is after. He's trying to trap Jesus in his answer, though. But it is a question with an answer. Jesus is the greatest command in the law of God is love. Love God, love people. So first, love God. 
Verse 37 and verse 38 once again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first great commandment. The great and first commandment. Just his style is phenomenal, isn't it? He just answers him toe-to-toe. This is guileless use of language here. This is not popular today. It was not popular in Jesus' day either. Jesus dealt with people toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball. And he spoke truth, and he did it in love. That's how we should do it. May we be such a people. Not gossip to gossip, not email to email. Eye to eye. It'll cost you to talk this way. It costs Jesus his life. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord with all your heart, with the core of your being. Love God with all your soul, with the life force within you. Love God with all your mind. Your thinking should be shot through all your plans, your mind, all day long. How can I love the Lord? How can I love the Lord? Heart, soul, mind. Every inner faculty of life leveraged to a full tilt, full court, full force effort in loving God. David said it so well in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Love God. That's the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor. Now, if we were to inquire, just how ought I to do that? The answer is very simple. As yourself. This statement's not original with the Lord. Um, As we said earlier, he's taking it from Leviticus 19.18. The Bible does not anywhere command us to love ourselves. The Bible commands us to love God and to love other people. The Bible takes it for granted that we love ourselves. That is given information that the Bible starts with. Notice, though, that Scripture doesn't indict self-love either. It's important to recognize that. Self-love is not a sin. It's not. It's simply health. Anyone who is indifferent toward their well-being, anyone who loathes or hates themselves, is not healthy. And they need help. Remember how the Apostle Paul speaks to husbands in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one, categorical statement, no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever did. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. 
And I'm so tempted to jump into Guy's sermon text for the next two Sundays, but I'll, we're going there. He loves you very much. Jesus loves you as his own body. Do you see how we are to love other people? The way you love you. Most of us don't need to be taught this. Our lives are one long me, 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 all day long. That's who we are. Verse 39 pegs us perfectly. One of my favorite recent evangelistic campaigns has been the um, internet YouTube uh, sensation, I Am Second. I don't know if you've seen this or not. I commend it to you. It's, it's good stuff. I Am Second. You could just look that up online. Actors, athletes, musicians, business leaders, all sharing their stories of their testimony and faith in Christ. Lead guitarist from the band Korn, sharing how much he loves Jesus, and Lecrae, Christian rap artist, and many others. It's phenomenal. I am second. Christ is first, I am second, is the idea. Technically here we're learning that we should be third, but let's not quibble, right? God, others, me. Either way, this is a great movement, this I am second Uh, They've got their hearts in the right place. Now, here's what's amazing. Recall that Jesus clearly had no hesitation in affirming a greatest commandment. Not all the commandments of God are equally weighty. If they were, Jesus would not have answered this question in the fashion that he did. That there is such thing as a greatest commandment, Jesus affirms. He gives the great one, and then he follows it with another like it, which I think means that the second flows from the first. Cannot do the second unless you do the first. First John 4 tells us that. The first establishes the second. Love God, love people. But look at what Jesus does in verse 40. This is worth it all. This is mind-blowing. Verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Hear him. He's preaching here. Love God, love others. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What does that mean? It means that of the law's 613 commands, love God and love your neighbor are not .003% of the law. It's the whole law. 100% of the law. The scriptures contain a few do's and don'ts for us. Did you know that? There's a few in there. 613 alone in the Mosaic law. There's a lot of stuff that God requires and that God prohibits in the Bible. But I pulled my calculator out a few days ago. Actually, my phone. And I just put 2 over 613 and hit equals. And I had to double check because the number was so small. I had to check my math to make sure with my family that I was right. 2 over 613 is .003. Three one-thousandths of a percent. That's tough to say even on the best of days. 
three one-thousandths of a percent. That's not much. That's very small. And Jesus' answer to the scribe's question doesn't just cover two commands. It's not as if that beyond these two, there's another 611 various commands that one must obey in addition to those two. No, no. It's that the 611 others merely show the first two in greater detail, just unfolding and unfolding and unfolding two commands, really just one word, love. That, my friends, is stunning. Of the law's 613 commands, love God and love your neighbor are not 0.003% of the law. They are 100% of the law, the whole law. And that just leaves us with one point this morning. Point three. God's law as a legislation of love, on the one hand, simplifies things for us considerably. And on the other hand, silences our mouths completely. God's law as a legislation of love, on the one hand, simplifies things for us considerably, and on the other hand, silences our mouths completely. God has legislated love. We can't, he has, he's God. 613 different times. There's two buckets for all the commands of God. There's a God bucket, and there's an other people bucket. You say, where's my bucket? You're, you take care of that just fine. I do too. Love God and love people. And you can put every single command of God, every last order, every last direction and precept and rule and demand and decree in one of two buckets. One for God and one for people. Simplifies things, doesn't it? It's amazing. I should think so. And you should know the New Testament is so on board with Jesus' teaching. They would, the apostles would be wise to teach the same thing that Jesus does about the law, and they do. Paul and James could not be marching any more lockstep with their master. Paul says in Romans 13.8 and Romans 13.10, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It is. And once again, Paul in 1 Timothy 1.5, he writes, The aim of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love. That's the whole goal of Christian doctrine. If what's getting put into your head is not changing your heart and your hands toward people, stop. It's not the point of learning. The point of learning is loving. And don't ever think that learning is a threat to loving. Learning is just more kindling for loving once you get them in order. Um, James 2.8 If you really fulfill the royal law, 
according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So James says, loving neighbor is a fulfilling of the royal law. That's very helpful. It's clarifying. just streamlines things for us. When I was in high school, all I was looking for was Cliff's Notes. I remember trying to listen to the Odyssey on a cassette tape one time. I couldn't find the Cliff's Notes. Regeneration does wonders, by the way. I started reading books when I met Jesus. Where am I? I have no idea where I am. Love is a fulfilling of the law. Cliff's Notes. There we go. Cliff's Notes. Jesus gives us two, just one, love. So here's a question. Have you ever tried loving God? Have you ever really loved another person? Really? Here's a question. Do you love God with one fraction of the passion that you love yourself? With one fraction of the passion passion that you love food or your reputation or your smartphone? You ever tried loving people? Do you love people half as much as you love you and your carefully guarded schedule and your money and your sin? God's law is a legislation of love on the one hand, and that simplifies things for us considerably. But on the other hand, it silences our mouths completely. And don't miss the reply of the Pharisees to Jesus in verse 46. There is no reply, actually. But we would be remiss not to point it out. After Jesus asked them a question of his own, we read in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any more questions. See what's going on here? Religious folks have questions for Jesus. They're trying to trap him. It doesn't happen. It backfires. And they have nothing more that they can ask him once he's set out that the law is love. Well, the theological cross-examination is over. They can't open their mouths. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, granted... Their silence was in response to his three different answers plus the question he stumped him with at the end, which we don't have time to look at, but you could read going up to verse 46. But it's enough to silence us too. Why does God give his law? Traditionally, there have been three answers to this question in church history, three uses of the law. The first is as a seat belt. A seat belt. The law is designed to restrain sin. Um, Every time that God says, don't, there's, uh, I think, between two and three hundred don'ts in the Mosaic law. It's just a seatbelt designed to protect us. Don't. Don't do that. 
it implies when God says don't that the law has a, has a restraining and a curbing effect on our sin. The law of God is a, it's designed to be a seatbelt, and it works that way. The law of God is also a street lamp. That's the second use of the law. Actually, I think I have the tradition out of order here, but this is the way it's serving me this morning. Second use of the law will be as a street lamp. Paul says in Romans 7.12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Amen? The word is a, it's a street lamp. Shows us which direction to go. That's a tremendous gift of the law that God would serve us in that capacity. Give us flashlights for our walk in this world. It's awesome. The third historical use of the law is as an x-ray. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's law is a seatbelt. It's a street lamp. It's an x-ray. As we consider the simple, uncomplicated, straightforward, run-it-up-the-middle teaching of Jesus here, on the one hand, this is very encouraging. The law of God is a highway called love. It's a seatbelt that says, don't hate me. Don't hate other people. Don't be indifferent to other people. It's an x-ray that shows you the inside, all of the indifference and all of the hatred that's coursing through you and me, totally depraved people. It simplifies things, but it also silences our mouths, particularly that x-ray piece. Paul says in Romans three nineteen to 20, Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So God's law, on the one hand, simplifies things for us considerably. And on the other hand, it silences our mouths completely. What does God want from us? Love. That's it. Love him. Love each other. You want a baseline? The way you love yourself. God has legislated love, to love him supremely and love others sacrificially. Yet all we can be sure of with absolute clarity at the end of the day Tell me if I'm preaching right now, but is how utterly selfish we are. That's all I feel. Completely caved in upon myself. When you love yourself, it's a challenge to love God. And it's a challenge to love other people. Through God's legislation of love comes the knowledge of sin. So what do we do now? We keep reading Romans. And we'll end with Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. We'll try to set the ball on the tee for Guy's sermon next Sunday. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, brothers and sisters. But now. 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned.